Hi, guys. Thank you for that warm hello. This is the LIC Reading Series. Hi, this is Catherine Lasota, host of the LIC Reading Series in Long Island City, Queens. In this episode, you'll hear the panel discussion from our May 14, 2019 event featuring Idra Novi, John Ray, and Garnet Cadigan. In this episode, we were celebrating our four-year anniversary and also the fact that I'd given birth to my second child one month before the event. So you might also hear my daughter in the background. She was hiccuping, one-month-old baby hiccuping in the background of this event for uh, much of the evening. You'll also hear about the Magic Silver Box, or MSB, which shows up about halfway through the discussion. I think we were giving the MSB a lot of nicknames this night as well. Um, In any case, the Magic Silver Box is a box that audience members put questions into, and if I choose one of the questions out of that box, the audience member wins a prize. I hope you enjoy the panel discussion. Let's jump on in to LIC Bar. Um, So I'm going to ask you guys a few questions, and then we're going to go to the MSB. Uh, Which... MSB! So, Garnet, I love that you wrote this uh, just two days after... No, what is today? Tuesday? Two days after Mother's Day. Yeah. Was that... So... So I I call her on Mother's Day and ask for a mission. I said, so I'm doing this thing on Tuesday. Can I write about you mooning? (laughs) I can't believe you haven't written about her mooning already. <laughs> well, it's like the first thing I would write about. Last year, the first time after like maybe decades of like, I spoke to her maybe like four times in like the previous 13 years. Yeah. And so we just sort of reconnected last year. Yeah. And so. So it's now, now, after a year of reconnecting, it was time to ask her about writing about her butt. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. So you so you wanted so you asked her permission to so this can bring us to our first question then. Um you decided now is the time that you wanted to ask her about this and you were wanting to write about this. I don't know how long you'd been thinking about wanting to write about this, but maybe you could each speak to um why you can talk about this story, Garnett, or, or you could talk about your novels, why this story at this time, what what caused you to say, okay, this is what I'm gonna dedicate my Amtrak ride to, or <laughs> I don't know how many years. <laughs> yeah. I feel that there's been a, maybe, it's, it's hard to read like 20 pieces and say there's a trend when it's just the 20 pieces you've read. But there seems to be an impulse to, in, a, in, 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 in memoir or in essays, in holding high other people's shame and holding back ours. Or we entered insofar as, you know, we once were lost, but now I'm found. Mm-hmm. And so for so long, I held my mom in deep contempt, you know, because of the anger. It was always about her anger, her anger, her anger. And something shifted like the past year or so where I recognized that I had a lot that I was responsible for and her anger. And so, I mean, you don't see it here now, but at, at some point, the piece is going to evolve. Where you, you begin the piece thinking, oh, it's really about her anger and this crazy, you know, mom who, you know, moons the neighbors. And it somehow starts making a shift somewhere midstream. And then it becomes a piece really about my anger. And it really becomes, the issue is really me. And which is why it sort of begins with that one line, which may stay that, you know, in for years, in all my life, you know, you know, my mother's story was like the story I told about her. So it shows even the ways in which she's trapped 
in my anger and so the way the stories that we tell about other people you know help shape and define them not only in our imagination but others and the more we tell these stories is the more they harden in our imagination till they get calcified into these images or these myths we sometimes wrench them from them in all their multiplicity mm. so there is still other thing for me to be angry about my mom and but there are also things that she has reason to be angry with me about which i had been slow to admit or to see myself and so the piece really is less an expression of her anger and more expression of my anger and mm -hmm. so it makes and i like the into pieces like making like sort of what's the word again like you know that game we play when the dogs are chasing your other kids and you sort of make a jump move mm -hmm. or i don't know much about basketball Wait, the but game where the dogs like, chase the kids? Like somebody out but it's running oh sorry you don't it like i'm in america <laughs> sorry in jamaica there's this game we play as kids where like really rough bad dogs it's really a stupid game but i played it as a kid where it says you know beware dogs don't mess and so you would you'd open the somebody would bust open the gate and the dog would come out like ready to bite you and so three or four of you're running what and so the person who won the game who would be the last person sort of standing without like a kind of bite i know young boys are well wow. men are stupid but boys are also like you know, men in training yes yeah, yeah men in training exactly <laughs> and so the dog would have to you know, like make shift or make a, a fake and send it yes that's the term fake out yeah. so i like doing fake outs yeah. in pieces okay. you know i like you know i like i think that writing is always about the problem of distance you know how to solve the problem of distance how to get someone you know you know who's before the words you've written to to feel you know, that you've created a world or built a world that inscribes yeah. itself onto their imagination. Mm -hmm. But it's also the problem of distance with even you, what it means to sometimes, you know, revision, 90% of revision is that distance of trying to step away from the text and ask, mm -hmm. you know, how could I stand alongside a reader and try to see this as a reader might see this? Mm -hmm. So you're always trying to solve the problem you know, of distance and the puzzle of distance. So even in writing, I sometimes like to play with that puzzle to have people say, oh, and I'm getting close and close, and I know what the story is about to suddenly go, oh, it was never really about her. It's about him. Mm -hmm. And you know, the person who really needs to you know see through things and deal with her anger is him much more so than her. And you know, in the ways in which he spent a whole lifetime trying to separate from her, only to find ways in which she's exactly mirrored in him. And so, you know, I like having like fake outs, not just to mess with the reader, but just to have it be a way of solving or playing with a puzzle of distance mm -hmm. and you know, asking what does it mean to Mm -hmm. um it's funny when you're talking about getting distance i was like well that's why i invented a country i felt like <laughs> i actually it was like the opposite of what you were writing i think um those who knew i wrote it like my desk was on fire i wrote it everywhere i wrote it on trains i wrote it on planes i wrote it in airports and once i finished it and i couldn't even write an email in an airport there's just like so much noise and i was like how but i just think I, I couldn't I couldn't stop working on it. I just worked worked on it all the time. And I think I was sort of doing the opposite where <clears throat> what do you do with your emotional baggage when when you have sons and you or daughters or children and whatever you have, pets, but you know, you just have this emotional baggage and you don't want to work it out with these people who just arrived in the world. You know, it's it's not their burden. How do you work it out yourself? You know, but then, you know, then the other question is, you know, when I was trying to write this book, um, Victor, the senator, the section I was reading from, his 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 uncles disappeared during the regime. And so his father doesn't know what to do with his anger. So the father takes it out on the son, who then takes it out. And how do you break that cycle of parents? 
parents working out their anger with the children? You know, how do you break that? And then if you are maybe fudge some sort of managed some way of breaking that cycle, but then what about everybody your kids is with at school? You know, and what about the larger anger in society? There's only so much you can do. And I think sometimes then you can have it where things that you attribute to parents was actually sort of just residual kinds of anger that was happening everywhere else that kind of you see it crystallize in your parents, but you're actually absorbing it from a lot of other people too, says the mother who's like, <laughs> you know, but I, I, I do think it's like, what do you do as a parent? You know, you, we, we all have the anger and then you see these things manifest in your children and you're like, well, what, how do you work it out? How do you stop these cycles of certain behaviors from happening? And so I think making up, uh, another country and the history. It could be, you know, two parts Ohio, three parts Chile, Cuba, Dominican Republic, four parts Pennsylvania. You know, like I can kind of throw all of these sort of patterns of power imbalances that I had seen happen with me or with friends, places I've lived um, in the lives of authors I translated from Portuguese and Spanish and now with this Iranian writer. So I could sort of put them all together. And I do think it's that distance where then you can do the fake out. Um, and I do think the fake out is sort of like the most delicious thing to do as a writer, you know, where it seems like a book about one thing or an essay about one thing. And then all of a sudden you take the reader somewhere else. I, I mean, I always tell my students that and I always try to do that, too, that, you know, if you're reading something and you from the cover think the book is going to give you X and you finish the book and all it gave you is X, I think the book failed. You know, I think that literature and art should not you should love it for another reason than the reason you opened it. Hence the fake out. <laughs> as, a, as an artistic yeah. Pre premise, yeah. I also love that you describe the creation of that country as what Ohio with Chile. <laughs> <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> friends who know me well. I love that makes. Well, it was very much about that. Um, yeah, yeah. I yeah. would say, yeah, it was great. I just felt like once you make up a country and you can make up its history, you can kind of pull and pick different elements um, to stick in a parable. I highly recommend the parable. It's very satisfying. Oh, and it feels so real though. Cause you read it too. And you kind of project like, I, you know, even this idea, like this is, I, I feel like I know what this country is. Like you bring your own things into it too. Well, it was interesting. I came up with those who knew it was not the reason, but then I kept running into people who would say things to me. Um, this one bookseller was from the Dominican Republic. And she's like, I know exactly where those high rises are in Santo Domingo. And I was like, well, and then like, there's a, there's a review on NPR and like this book, which is clearly takes place in Cuba. And I'm like, <laughs> and then there was somebody who was from like the Allegheny Mountains where I grew up and the Allegheny Mountains the towns are very much like islands you know like nobody leaves nobody comes why would they and so everyone's just like stuck there in this town and so several people were like oh it's so clearly about like those towns and you know the union guys and the corruption that happens in, in western Pennsylvania I'm like hmm. <laughs> and then friends who have been to Chile were like well that's basically Valparaiso Joseph was like I know that I know that collectivo. So it's it's been really funny because that those who knew is like everyone brought separate histories and saw it all in there, which I think is like, you know, the Rorschach of fiction in a way. So. Yeah. yeah, they're all really, right. Yeah. They're all right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You should really keep that in mind whenever you're reading a review of a book. It's like yeah. that individual's review of the book is whatever, you know, they're bringing their things too. But John. Oh, yeah. The novel basically began as a a story I heard when I was working as a when I was traveling as a journalist in Afghanistan. <laughs> yes, and you were there, um, you were there uh, researching information about, was it John Marker Lind? Yeah, I was, I was initially supposed to write an article about, uh, I don't know how many people remember him anymore. Uh, it's kind of, it seems to me like it was just a couple of years ago, but um, the American Taliban 
uh, a young man named John Walker Lind, who was from Northern California, um, and who got interested in um, Islam initially through Spike Lee's film about Malcolm X, weirdly enough, and then started listening to like you know a lot of sort of um, Nation of Islam kind of related hip hop, and just in this very strange suburban white boy way at some point became legitimately interested in the religion, more interested in the religion than in the pop culture that had led him to it and became very seriously interested in studying Islam and um, uh, did so in a very um, considered way. Um, ended up studying uh, in a madrasa in Pakistan near the border to Afghanistan um, in the year 2000 at a time at which the Taliban were actually considered to be friends of the United States. We were trying to run an oil pipeline through the country at the time. Um, and at a time when the Mujahideen were still kind of in, in our popular memory as the sort of freedom fighters fighting against the Soviet Union. Uh, so in that sort of context, he crossed the border into Afghanistan um, in order to eventually serve as a, just essentially a regular infantryman in the army of the Taliban who were fighting these warlords in the north. And um, uh, he really just had the colossal bad luck of doing that a few months before 9-11. Um, anyway, so that was the initial reason that I was there. Um, we were trying to find, uh, my fixer and I were trying to find people who had perhaps known John Walker Lind um, personally when he had been there. Um, and to try and tell that story from the point of view of actually the people in the country where he was actively um, serving as a soldier rather than from the kind of, from our point of view, right? Which is how could he turn on his country, blah, blah, blah. Uh, because you can't talk to John Walker Lind. He's still in a maximum security prison, although he's supposedly getting out. Up soon, right? He's supposed to get out this month, actually. But um, anyway, that was the original idea. Uh, we were talking to an old man in a little town north of Kabul and um, he was very talkative unlike most uh, people in the region were and he said, oh sure, I can tell you anything you want to know about the American boy uh, or about the American girl if you want to know and we were sort of astonished by that and that was sort of the beginning of um, trying to find out what this was about, whether this was just something apocryphal, whether it was real. And I wasn't, unfortunately, I had to leave Afghanistan a few weeks later, so I was never able to get to the bottom of the story. My my sense is that it's just the kind of war story that springs up. Um, that I don't think it, I don't think there was such a person, but I don't know for certain. So that's why it's good, you know. Eventually, I remembered that I'm not a journalist; I'm a novelist, and so it, you know, <laughs> led to the novel. That's yeah, yeah. that's how it happened. Talk about um, in the story. I mean, there's a lot of this in American stories of other parts of the world but the story of the taliban fake out <laughs> good then bad there's fake outs everywhere so yeah, <laughs> so yeah. You were there's the, the 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 kind of capsule story of the taliban is good for about two weeks and then bad since then yeah. maybe it'll switch again you never know um, uh, so, uh, so I'm wondering, because, so Gernet, you write, writing this on the way here and you're talking about the ways it might develop and, and you want to talk about, you know, it starts off, it's about your mother's anger then about your anger. And then John, you were researching this one thing and it led to this, um, novel, um, just in terms of, of revision and surprising yourself, I guess, do you, 
how much how much did these stories change and how much do your stories change garnett as you work on them um how much changed here did you have these things mapped out before you wrote these books um yeah i guess i'm just it's a question of revision which is very widely framed uh because again i don't sleep anymore uh but take it take it as you will like did I think I think John, I have read somewhere that you don't work with an outline, for example, right? But but do you know where the story is going, or or what did what did you learn? What what did you learn is that was new that you didn't expect? I guess as you wrote this piece or worked or revised this piece. Well, I'll begin. That that changed substantially for me uh, in that the earlier drafts. Well, actually, this is unusual for me because I just sort of wrote sentence by sentence. The early drafts of almost everything I write mm -hmm. is a word cloud. Mm. Um, so I actually sometimes feel like a fraud, especially with writing. So how, do, you know, how does the structure work? How does your pieces begin? They begin as a word cloud. Even this, actually, honestly, this began as a word cloud because it was like, you know, it said moon in Jehovah's Witness, angle. And it's said a few words. And so I sort of let these words sort of sit in the slide. I almost think of it as a word cloud that just keeps sliding in a word pool and it keeps sliding. And, and I sit with it and turn it up in my head for even a month, sometimes six months. Mm -hmm. And someone said, you're not writing that piece. And no, I am writing that piece. Mm -hmm. I'm not putting hand to paper, but that piece is sort of, and I keep having it swirling around to like, it sort of, sort of lands where I think the structure is there. Mm -hmm. And actually with me, I keep having it swirling around to find that first paragraph. And once I've written that first paragraph, I'll just... In a breeze. So, for example, a piece I'd written about walking and the experience of walking in you know various cities yeah. and being you know embodied, being someone black who yeah. has to be overly conscious about their vulnerability and the way that affects the vector in a in how I move. That piece set them in my head for maybe a good two three months, and I remember my editor, who's a wonderful fellow, John Freeman. You know, for which I think I was put on earth to test his patience. Um, <laughs> kept saying, you know, where is the piece? Where is the piece? I said, no, I'm writing it. And he goes, well, show me what you have so far. And I said, oh, everything you have so far is in my head. <laughs> and he's like, we close next week, Wednesday. And I said, no, you'll have it. And then he calls and he says, what do you have? And I said, no, it's almost there. And he goes, we're going to go ahead without you. Yeah. And then, you know, I wrote the entire thing in about two hours. But I didn't really write it in two hours. So I've, said people, I've written it in two hours and John said, don't tell anyone that they will like hate you. And I said, but I didn't really write it in two hours. Yeah. I put pen to paper in two hours. It sat in my head for over two months in a, in a punctuated by curse words from you by text and email. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I keep having it swirl until I think I've found a structure, but especially the opening paragraph. And once I find the opening, it just, in a good, in a, I remember, I think it was John McPhee, um, who I like more for his technique than his writing. Um, it may be a cultural thing where, and I haven't been beguiled in about his stories as much as others, though I have in a, in a deep admiration for what he does as a reporter and, you know, and his process. But he once described the opening paragraph as a flashlight that shines through the entire piece. Mm. And it's sort of like I keep looking for that light and once I find the opening. So even in this opening, I find two or three things that may stay with me. And so even though it's a piece about anger now, it could become in a month later really a piece about silence. Because I discovered as I was writing on the train that, oh, part of actually what makes my relationship work with my mom now is a kind of compact with silence, an unwillingness 
or rather negotiation that we are not going to bring up all these things because there's no way to go back there and not in a stay there that there is no way to there is no possible answer you could give me that, that I would find satisfying mm-hmm. or there is no possible answer you know I could give you that you you know find satisfying and so there are almost like all these zones that are off limit in order to to maintain our you know relationship you know our friendship mm-hmm. and so it 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 begins now as a piece about anger but it may end up being a piece about silence or a piece about the kind of compacts we make in order to you know maintain a relationship or or it may even become something about relationship or friendship mm-hmm. and so I admire that you read such an early version to that's that's so great that you'll share that with us and could change so much still, right? By the way, that that um essay that you're referencing went on to have quite a life. I mean, it's it's a wonderful essay. It's I think it's had a couple different names, right? Is is it Walking While Black or yes, Black and so Blue? Yes, so this is online. Yes, it is Black and Blue, which is original. Yeah. Which may be the only good title I've ever come up with an essay. <laughs> kind of works like it was like about that song black and blue uh-huh. about judging someone by their skin yeah. but it's also about the opening of invisible man because i wanted to remind people of that where yeah. invisible man begins where he's hearing that song playing yeah. and reflecting on the fact that he only gets two options invisibility or hypervisibility yeah. and it's about you know blue as in you know offices in blue right. and black bodies right. and then black and blue is in that kind of bruising and abuse that dealt mm-hmm. with from my stepfather so you never ever find a title that works in four levels and mm-hmm. then they're like nah the algorithm god said no Walking while black. Oh, That's what it'll yeah, be yeah. online. <laughs> but it's lived on. It's, yeah, it was in. I mean, yeah, it ended up in a thing. That really says yeah. a lot about the internet, doesn't it? Yeah. No, it has to be called walking while black. <laughs> yeah. Not black. That's pretty. That's yeah. depressing. Gosh, I don't want the algorithm to. Yeah. Prevail. <laughs> yeah. Um. And, I guess, uh, actually. It, you, you mentioning this essay brings up something that I actually uh, saw sorry. John quoting somewhere that I want to bring up. But I I, 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 I am curious about Idra how you structured this book and also you, the, the both books actually the collection of different formats and short forms and if you can speak to that a little bit. Um, I think because it's a book about you know various kinds of hypocrisy and public record and private truth that it felt necessary to put bits of both in the book so bits of media where you would see the public narrative from bits from newspapers and things like that and then also the private narratives of the playwright brother who's sort of complicit in what in um Freddie, who come up in the section I read. So, you know, he he's a playwright. And so sort of the shame of of not speaking up and questioning that whether his own brother is actually, um, you know, capable of the things he suspects maybe his brother did. So I, I was trying to use those other kinds of media. And I also just like metafiction. I think it's fun to add in bits of the threads of metafiction. But I think more than anything, it just felt like it needed so you could open one page and read what was in the newspaper and who's being celebrated in the newspaper and on the very next page read what that person's doing in private like that juxtaposition felt um acutely of something that i was experiencing you know with people that um i had seen have this duplicitous uh life go on and on and on and that you would think it would catch up with them and often it doesn't 
<laughs> and so I just think, you know, we, you, we have this sense of just inherent justice. Um, but that doesn't always hold. I mean, you know, we'll see what happens in the reelection. I mean, it's just sometimes <laughs> the th- consequences that you think are coming may not be or not as soon as you would think. And so what do you do with that then? What do you do when you have that truth and you know that there is no consequences and you have to just sort of inhabit that something that presents as silence to others, but for you is quite loud. So, I mean, I was, it's more about like the, you know, what it's like to do the, the public record. So the public record had to be in there so that you would sort of hear it, um, in contrast to what everyone's quietly living with alongside it. So, yeah, but I didn't add that in until later. And that was, that was also like a real pleasure to come up with. I love pretending to be a newspaper. (laughs) And I should say something short about the piece that I always think that the responsibilities of a panel are different from like a lecture. And so whenever I'm on a panel with somebody, I try to sort of draw myself in their work and then have whatever writing sort of reference or is influenced by them. And so I reread um, John's works and Idris' works. Uh-huh. And both of them are really, you know, very attentive on what does it mean to see? You know, what is uh-huh. seeing really? And, you know, and, you know, you know, is what before us, you know, what truly is. And so they're both experimented, not only in the most recent works, but in, even before, and also shame. And so especially the last books of both of you, it's kept, you know, asking the question about, you know, you know, what is shame? And, you know, and how do we, you know, come to terms with shame and come to terms with seeing and in his in mm-hmm. and what's what we've seen before us what truly is and so i said okay whatever right has to this deal with shame in some way it has to do with the act of seeing and what does it mean to see mm-hmm. and so even though they're not quoted directly sometimes what you know what starts a piece or even what i want to hold on to the piece is like okay i want this piece to be a piece that reflects my reading of both of them and so whatever happens in the revisions it still has to at some point not let go of that you know focus on what does it mean to see truly see and what does it mean to grapple with shame wow wow, wow. <laughs> stop teasing i just i just realized that it's like 10 o'clock and i need to get moving so you guys can have some cake um but can i just uh i'm just gonna leave this quote before i jump in because um to the box to the msb because I, I thought I, I thought about it when um, with your essay Black and Blue and this idea of walking um, in a black body and having to be a certain way to um, both be hyper aware but also as attracting as little attention as possible, like invisible but visible. Um, uh, John, you. Uh, there's something I read about you uh, finding a book about uh, surviving bear attacks. Yeah. And in the, in the I'm still here. It's what's yeah. that? It's still, still here. You're still here. Yeah, you're still surviving the bear attacks. All the bears in Mexico. Uh, um, there are bears. In Mexico. Yeah, but uh, supposedly huh? in the north near uh, near the U.S. border, the wildest part of Mexico is basically up close to the border of the U.S. and uh-huh. then down very in the extreme south. There are some bears, I guess. I so seen useful guide for you. I'm um, still here. You're still here, but also, and you brought it up in the context of um, guidance for writing. But this is, I don't know. Maybe I'm stretching here, but uh, I just want to read this real fast. And I'll jump into the box. You said that in the book, uh, the author explains how, in order to play dead effectively, one has to be extraordinarily present and even strangely open to what is going to happen while still having the clarity of mind to protect all of one's most vulnerable areas from mauling. (laughs) I started to think that the process shouldn't be called playing dead, really, but remaining alive, 
It's so much more active than I'd always imagined. Um, if you just lie there letting your body go completely flat and limp, you'll most likely get eaten. You have to interact with your potential killer in a very conscious way. I came to realize that playing dead is at its heart a creative act, and for me, it became a kind of artistic ideal. And like, yeah, that is kind of, I mean, does that speak to you? Is it, yes? <laughs> I don't know. I thought that was great. In a way, though, that essay is about how, it's about how I found a book at randomly in my neighborhood where I always, I always look up, I'm sure like everybody here, I always look through the books people put out. And this was just a random, a truly random book that I really grabbed for its novelty value. The title of the book was Bear Attacks, Their Causes and Avoidance and had a funny cover. So I thought, oh, that'd be fun to have lying around the house. And then I started reading it mostly as a work avoidance tool and became, <laughs> became really obsessed with it. And then it eventually took on this kind of like I Ching quality for me. And I would open it up to a random page about a specific situation featuring a bear and a mauling or a, a, an attack of some kind. And it, I started to find all of these amazing uh, lessons in it. But probably it would have been the case, you know, if it had been like Love Signs or, you know, Tuesdays with Maury, it probably would have all been the same. <laughs> You'd still be here. Yeah. yeah. Still alive. All right. Guys, uh, so we're going to do super, super fast lightning round for this uh, MSB, and we have to decide who's going to get the first question, and the way we're going to do that is um, I am thinking of an animal that has a large mouth. You each tell me an animal that has a large mouth. Frog. Whoever's closest. Uh, wow, that was fast. You said frog? All right. Um, crocodile. Crocodile. Have it in my head. What's the thing called again with a big horn? Just say an animal. Rhinoceros. <laughs> what did you say? Unicorn? Rhinoceros. Oh. They don't a have rhinoceros? A, rhinoceros doesn't have a big mouth. <laughs> Maybe yes, he's they, trying yes, not to do. get the yes, question. Yeah. Oh, are you trying to avoid the <laughs> <No>. question? <laughs> it has a big, yeah, a big horn come horn. out of its nose. Yeah. yeah. On top of its nose. Rhinoceros. Yeah. Rhinoceros, frog, and... A rhinoceros or a camel. <laughs> and a crocodile. All right, guys. Um, in 2019, I'm giving away a small plastic animal. Oh, it is a rhinoceros? <laughs> it's not. You're wrong. It's a snake. Because a snake can be like, and you're like, they can really disarticulate like their jaw. Animal. It can eat a large animal. I don't know what's closer, frog or crocodile. Crocodile. <laughs> They're both though. They're both That's pretty. Tough. That's tough. Who says frog? I say frog. Okay. Who says croc? Who, who says crocodile? It's a reptile. Okay. Well, I mean, the. I think it's frog, but I have to go with the audience. I think you should take that snake to Mexico City. It looks like it wants to go to yeah. a dry place. It doesn't right. want to live here with me. <laughs> Look at this weather. But you still have to answer the question. All right, listen. <laughs> this first person's... You see, no, it's, it's rhinoceros. We got to move on. It's crocodile because that's what the audience said, and I trust this audience, a beautiful audience. All right, you're going to get not only a plastic snake, but a gift certificate to LIC Corner Cafe which is a few blocks that way, and they have really nice coffee, but also pastries and pie and sandwiches, and I ate there today. Oh, nice. And it was good company. Okay. Um, so the question is, how do you force yourself to stop messing around and write? Who asked this? 
Yes. Oh, the big oh, question. Are you taking it now? No, you're just taking okay, okay. it. I'm just, I'm just heckling and talking smack. Um, <clears throat> I don't have the answer to that question every day. I hope to have the answer enough to actually get things up and going. I do a lot of writing in my head too. Procrastinators of the world unite. Yeah, no, I, I oh. yes. tomorrow. Procrastinators <laughs> of the world unite <laughs> tomorrow. tomorrow. That's hilarious. Yeah, I do a lot of writing in my head too. A lot of it. Um, I write things on my phone. Yeah. I think that doesn't, you know, but I do think like somehow it's lower stakes. And sometimes I think when you don't end up doing things, it's in part because you feel like what if it doesn't come out perfectly, but you know, on the train or to read in public. But I do think there's something, if you just find a way to get it down where you don't self-censor and you just get it down to get it down and then you already have the words and then you can do more of them once you have them. But the point is just get them down. Gotta get them down. Um, yeah. Yeah. Get that word cloud into a document. Totally. Yeah. Stop pissing off John Freeman. <laughs> yeah, if you have John Freeman being <laughs> passive aggressive towards you, that probably helps. I mean, to me, it's just a self-loathing thing. You know, you just build up. You, I avoid, every day I avoid working as long as I can. And eventually it costs me more mental effort and energy to not do it than to do it. So then it becomes easier to do it than not to do it. And I just do it. Oh, it so feels so horrible for not doing it. I'm going to give you a plastic animal for also answering the question. I'll pick it later. I just can't stop talking. I know. It's good. I like it. Um, well, you're out of the running for the next question, Idra. So uh, we need to decide who's getting the next one real fast. And we're going to go with um, name a number between 58 and 96. 59. Rhinoceros. Sixty-two point seven. Sixty point seven. That's amazing. Um, you should get it just for that. But you do get it, Garnett, because it was seventy-two, and you're closer. Even if this was the price is right, you still got it because you did not go over. All right. Um, let's go with this one. <clears throat> The asker of this question will get a gift certificate to the Astoria Bookshop. Good for in-store purchase. Go visit that fine-ass bookstore yes. in Astoria. It's super, super nice. Has something for everybody. It's terrific. It is, It is yeah, right? It's such a wonderful such store. Such a wonderful store. Such wonderful yeah. people who work there, too. Yeah. All right. Um, <laughs> let's ask you this. Uh-oh. What was it like at your first reading, the first time you shared your work? Who asked this? All right. It's hard to answer that question. It was like, I remember hearing my name and then I remember sitting down and going, I really bombed. Oh. And then some of the seven went, congrats. And it's like, what happened? I didn't even remember what I said up there. <laughs> so it was, it's, it's it's hard to, to explain because I was so nervous. And actually, I'm more nervous speaking to a crowd. It's like, give me 600 people. Because you also have one person who's like really kind to you. is like, anything you say is great. <laughs> you know? And then you always have the one person who's like, anything you say is shit. And so you always look for the first. Yeah, yeah. Um, but with a smaller, in a group like this, with a smaller audience, yeah. then it then becomes much more difficult. You know, you feel a greater responsibility and, and it's easy to read the audience. And so the ways in which you're not connecting 
is much more amplified. I think the first reading was something like this. And so you felt a greater responsibility, felt much more amplified. And, and I was too busy thinking about what I was saying and how it bombed and to remember anything, which then made a huge difference in how I've handled things ever since then. I recognize it's not to look good or not good, look good. It didn't matter if I wrote on the train because I was willing to like look like an idiot because I wanted to ask, you know, what kind of experience do I want people to have in at a reading? You know, what are the responsibilities? Which is why, you know, how to you know speak in a way or read in a way that pulls in with the themes from the other two people who are reading with me and so on. Now, you know, going in a, and I still try to find that one sympathetic, generous face, um, which can get in trouble because at the end of the reading, someone's like, he's so into me. And I was like, no, you're a generous face in the audience. Oh, who is it? Was it my baby? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. And so, yeah, so that first one was a blur. But ever since then, I can tell you from reading number two onwards, every single one, because I always say, you know, you know, you know what, you know, what does the audience need? How should I respond? How can we actually have a conversation? And. And even in room is 700, we say, what do I need to do to make this feel intimate and to make it feel like I always imagine that we're always chatting at the front porch. You know, the front porch is the persona that somebody wants the whole world to see. But what everybody really wants to get to is the kitchen where you relax <laughs> and you lean on the counter and you're true friends. So whenever I step up, I said, you know, what do I need to do? Who do I need to speak to? How do I need to operate to turn this front porch into a kitchen? It's like the drishti point, that person who smiles and seems receptive. You know, in yeah. yoga, the drishti point is like whenever you do a balance and you find you find a point that helps you from falling oh, over. Yeah. I was always like, you need to do a reading. You're like, oh, there's my drishti point. <laughs> yeah. A lovely smile. <laughs> That'll keep me from falling yeah. over. <laughs> and don't worry, it's going to turn into a kitchen after this very last question because we have cake. We have cake. Um, and so you don't need to guess anything, John. You're just going to get this question because you're I the last guess. one. What if I want to guess? You want to guess? Okay. Rhinoceros. Uh, yes. Right. You win. So this final. That's just. I just want to say that's the most Garnet Cadigan thing ever. Wow. The question was, "What's an animal with a big mouth?" And you're like, "What's the animal with the giant nose and the horn <laughs> coming off of the nose?" That's you guys got some vintage some vintage Cadigan today. Yeah, man. He just read the room. What's the name of that game again? Sorry. The one where the dogs chase the little boys. Charades where you draw things and somebody said, no, donkey. And you go like, no, that's a rent. Like Pictionary or no. Charades. Not charades. We draw. What is this? Yeah, but there's, but isn't it also a. Yeah, where Game I draw the picture and you all guess. I draw the picture and say, okay. look at it. All right, yeah. okay, all right. Yeah, so I'm the worst part. And then you open the door and the dog comes at you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the dog comes out with a big mouth. The rhinoceros comes out. <laughs> comes out. <laughs> all right. This is a super special prize because uh, we have a super special sponsor this month for our anniversary. Um, who's familiar with Taste of LIC? A couple people, yes. yeah. No, it's like this is the day you get to go in and taste all this delicious food that's made in this neighborhood, and it's super fun, and it's on June 12th, and this is two tickets. To and taste that's what I get for answering this question? No, man, you're getting a plastic animal, though. Remember? I'm going to give you one. Don't you worry. All right. I know. I know. John, you kind of already answered this question about this book, so you could feel free to answer this about a previous novel. 
The question is, how did you choose the characters you were going to write about and who asked this question? Oh, I asked that question. What? <laughs> you want to answer I'm, it? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Whatever. <laughs> whatever. Rhinoceros. Whatever. Um, okay, let me think for one second. Uh, yeah, you know, I, um, I think probably the easiest way, uh, and the way that I think most, I've heard many writers say that they, you know, they begin, especially writers who are praised for writing a very, uh, plausible and sort of psychologically nuanced and believable story. They'll often say that they began by imagining their uh, maybe two or one or two or three characters and they kind of worked on thinking about those characters until they became believable and real to them and they you know seemed almost realer than their real life and that's absolutely not how I write books at all uh, I don't I more think about the whole the book as a whole text almost like a sort of uh, clockwork you know, machine, you know, and so, I mean, this is horrible. You're never supposed to say this, but the characters to me only have significance in so far as they contribute to the entire book or the entire story. Mm -hmm. uh, and they need to be exactly plausible and credible and nuanced and th three-dimensional enough for the purposes of the story you're telling or the text you're writing and no, not necessarily any more than that. So, um, I mean, if if that shows when you're done, you're in deep shit, you know? <laughs> but, uh, so usually I begin with something else. I don't begin with the characters necessarily. I might begin with the situation or I might begin with the kind of mood or the uh, place even. You know, I'll start with the place more often than 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 characters. And the, and the characters kind of, it's very weird, but this is really how I think about it. I think about, actually really the book is the only character. You know, the book is the thing that has to be plausible and believable and, and three-dimensional by the end and not any of the parts, although the parts, you know, I don't know. No, that's good. Yeah. Oh. No. I know. Okay. You flew Can I have in. the snake? Where's the snake? No, no. You're getting, you're getting a buffalo. Oh, nice. Yes. Because wow. I think it could also be the monosodium buffalo. Yeah. And I was born in Buffalo and grew up no. in Buffalo. Buffalo, New York. That's where I'm from. That's what I'm right talking there. about. It's the magic of the LSU. The Queen City. Series. The City of Light. Because <laughs> no funny. one calls it. No, I no, no, no. Oh. <laughs> and whatever you want to read into that psychologically, feel free. So you guys, these are all really, these books are well-wrought characters. And you should buy them. And I'm sure that our authors would be happy to sign them. Those three on the right are terrific. The, the one on the, the plastic? Yes. I don't know. Um, let's give a big round of applause. For, Thanks, thank guys. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. That's today's show. If you like what you heard, tell a friend or leave a review wherever you found us. Special thanks to LIC Bar, the Astoria Bookshop, and our amazing intern, Nadine Santoro. A big thank you to our sponsors over the years, LIC Corner Cafe, Sweet Leaf Coffee, Court Square Diner, and The Gantry Restaurant. This episode was recorded by Carl Jacob and mixed and edited by Justin Alvarez. Our theme music is by Pat Irwin. The LIC Reading Series is made possible in part by the Queen's Council on the Arts with public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. I'm your host, Catherine Lasota. See you next time in Queens.